This is Nick Fletcher, and I am recording from home, as I've done with all of the other interview of the PD Pod podcast. However, obviously, these are different times as all the rest of you are also home right now. And so I want to reach out and say that I think that we've got a terrific society and a terrific medical workforce across the country, and we're all obviously appreciative of all the frontline workers out there today. This is hopefully a little bit of a sidebar, something that you can enjoy while you are spending your time in relative isolation. And today's episode is going to be an interview with a very close friend of mine, Noelle Larson, who is really a wonderful and unique person in a lot of different ways. Certainly for this show, she's unique in that she is the first female orthopedist who I've interviewed. And that was done a little bit on purpose. Noel and I trained together as fellows in Dallas. And I think that it was pretty obvious early on that she was quite special. She is an incredibly hardworking, resourceful, dedicated clinician. She's an unbelievable researcher. We'll get to that in the podcast, but I have no idea how she is productive as she possibly is. And she has a really unique story. Having grown up in Seattle, she grew up actually living on a houseboat. Noelle has done a lot of things that I think those of us in her class and those of us certainly in our society are somewhat in awe of. She has managed to navigate the waters of creating a prospective randomized trial in surgery, really within the first couple of years of her practice. She's got 120 plus publications. She is involved with all the major orthopedic and spine societies at a pretty high level. And she does a lot of research and gives a lot of talks on things that I think are really impactful. There's no fluff there. And I think that's one of the things that makes her so unique. On top of that, Noelle's a mom and she has now three children. The oldest who I remember running around with my kids when we were all fellows together. And so it's crazy to see pictures of them. She's got a wonderful husband, Scott, who was a lawyer and now spends most of his time with the children. But they have a wonderful family. And I think Noel, sort of like other people we've had on our podcast, from one of her partners, Todd, to John Scheneker, to others, is partly successful because she's always so positive. She feels that she can do anything. And as far as I can tell, she can. And that's always fun when you're talking about working with somebody because she's always positive and pushing the ball forward. So I really looked forward to this for several months. And Noelle is somebody who I enjoy talking to in person. And hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation as well. Thank you guys again for listening. Stay safe. And uh, obviously, we're all thinking of each other in these difficult times. Okay, so I am now recording with Noel, and it's the beginning of April, and obviously these are a little bit of different times, but we're going to enjoy the opportunity to spend an hour together on the phone, even though we probably prefer spending time together at Posner or someplace else. But Noel, thank you so much for doing this today. It's my pleasure, Nick, and really fun to come together and reflect a bit on our field and our career pathway as you said, unusual times, but I think they're going to define our generation. I think this is how we behave now is going to affect what we see for the rest of our career. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to start and obviously sort of the starting place for a lot of this unfortunate stuff that's been happening with the COVID was around your birthplace and where you were raised. But I like to sort of get an idea as to your childhood. And I had prefaced it in the lead-in that you have a little bit of a unique story. You did not necessarily grow up in the typical way that a lot of us probably did. 
Tell me a little bit about your upbringing in the Pacific Northwest. Well, uh, people often ask, do you have a brother or a sister? And I often say that, I, yes, I have one older sibling, and it's a 64-foot ferro-cement boat <laughs> that my parents built. So they were early in their marriage and decided they wanted to build a boat. They thought it was going to take them two years, but it ended up taking about seven. And that was their first beginning years of the marriage. And then I came along after the boat. And the concept was it would be a cruise ship that would take out six to seven guests at a time for a week in the San Juan Islands. So I came home to the boat as a baby, and every summer we did about 16 to 20 uh, weeks of cruising with charter guests, and it was a family business. And then in the winter, we moored primarily in Seattle at a historic wooden boat shipyard where my father worked through the winter. So yeah, I think my upbringing was definitely a little bit atypical. I truly am an only child, and so I was kind of the, the focus of my parents' efforts. And I'd say right now, looking at how my dad interacts with my children, I think I had a, a very unusual upbringing because my dad is always asking questions, always asking them, what do you think? How does this work? How do you put it together? My parents also both worked as teachers. So on the whole, I, I had an unusual upbringing that I think exposed me early to mechanical principles and sailing and wind and tides and boats. And it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Well, and probably we're going to get to this a lot later, but hard work. It's interesting that your parents sort of melded together education through their profession as teachers with sailing, which I actually spent time in high school on a research vessel and is a tremendous amount of hard work. And I think that probably rubbed off at least on both levels for you uh, with regards to your career. My father loved it because he was outdoors sailing all day. It was a little bit harder on my mother because she prepared food for six people on a boat. And at the time, I had a very idyllic memory of what our galley or kitchen looked like. But interestingly, my dad more recently was living aboard a boat, and I was now the cook. <laughs> and it's quite hard, actually, cooking and cleaning and maintaining, just for my own family, a level of meals and cleanliness. So Looking back on it, I think my mom was an amazing lady and for sure very gracious and also a very hard worker. Yeah, I can imagine. And now um, this idyllic life on a boat didn't last because you said that your folks had to sell it around the age of 10. And then you were in private school after that? Yes. My parents started sending me to private schools in Seattle and the tuition was quite expensive and the boat just barely managed to pay for itself. So as far as saving for retirement or again, planning for my education, my parents felt like they had to switch fields. So my dad actually started a contracting company for asbestos removal. So he's one of the first companies in Seattle that would remove asbestos. And I think all those skills he learned about engineering and construction and team leadership, all of that, he kind of applied in contracting. He had a very successful contracting company. Now, it wasn't really his love. I don't think he ever loved it to the same extent as sailing, but it was certainly more lucrative and provided a better future for my family. Yeah, but you were not an engineer in, I know that you didn't do engineering in college, but you sort of always had that tilt to you, right? Well, I really think I should have. I got interested in physics and math, and I always felt like I could fall back to engineering. Once I got into college and met some of the other physics majors, I realized I did not have what it takes to become a theoretical physicist. 
And interestingly, a lot of the experimental physicist is a lot of engineering where you're building things and designing experiments. And my preliminary plan at college was actually to go into geophysics. I was going to get an undergraduate in physics and then a PhD in geophysics and then travel the world, blow things up, study earthquakes, look at <laughs> seismic waves. That, that was my vision, you know, say sophomore year. And so this is out at Stanford for the listeners. So you were obviously quite the student. I know the, the story, but I think you did pretty well in college. And at what point did you say, hey, maybe this geophysics may not be for me and instead I want to move towards medicine? I had a summer research internship at the Alaska Volcano Institute in Fairbanks. And unfortunately, my research mentor left me alone analyzing seismic data for three months behind a computer. He got to go off to the Aleutian Island chain and he was studying the volcanoes. <laughs> but I sat home and I realized most of these positions are eight or nine months a year behind a computer and only two or three months out doing field work. And at the same time, a lot of the other undergraduates in this program were pre-med. And then I started thinking, well, pre-med, this is a nice way to involve, you know, intellectual interest, science, and also have a, a people-facing position where you're not sitting behind a computer. Gotcha. So, and then after that, you stayed sort of local for med school and then went on to, to Mayo. I mean, you spoke about sort of the family history from an engineering standpoint, and then also some of your interests in college. Do you think that that all directed you towards ortho as a career and specifically pediatrics, or were there other factors that really played strongly into that? like mentors and whatnot? Yeah, I found ortho relatively late. My first year of med school, I was fairly certain I wanted to do surgery because I've always loved working with my hands and I, I like visualizing things in 3D. And I was actually headed towards ear, nose, and throat. And then I had this chance two-week rotation on orthopedics and I said, whoa, this is what I really like. And, and interestingly, my favorite otolaryngology surgery I had seen was a jaw reconstruction from a free fibula. And that was like really what I enjoyed. And I realized I enjoyed the fibula. So I thought maybe I should turn my attention to the extremities. <laughs> That's great. Of all the aspects of that surgery, the bony work is, is I think, what, the only thing that I'm focused on. Well, good. And so you went to Mayo and I know you had a, had a great time there. And then again, for the listener, Noelle and I met I think the first time we probably met was as fellows in our orientation weekend down in Dallas, but we had a, a wonderful year together. And I know that we had a number of mentors who were there for us when we were fellows, but I, I was wondering if you could talk about sort of mentorship during the rest of your education in addition. So in college and in med school and residency and in fellowship, who are the people who really stood out to you for shaping the career that you have? Well, Mayo has, you know, been a great place for me and it was a really surprising move to my friends and family to have ended up at Mayo Residency. But I felt like it would be a place where I could succeed. Like the culture here was accepting and interactive and full of curiosity and not as hierarchical as some institutions. So coming here out, you know, right out of med school, Amy McIntosh was a huge influence on me. She was a resident and she had elected already to go into pediatric orthopedics. And both her as well as Bill Shaughnessy and Tony Stans really presented a, what a wonderful career pathway there is in pediatric orthopedics. And I've always enjoyed the opportunity to work all over the body. After I had completed my pediatrics rotation in residency, I realized I enjoyed the multi-generational dynamics too, where you're working both with the parents and the child, seeing the child develop over time. It was very much like a calling. 
And as far as fellowship, as you know, we had a great year in fellowship. I learned a lot from my co-fellows, Nick and Sumit and Mike Kwan and Jonathan Schiller. I think we had a great team. And then one thing that was amazing about our fellowship is that the whole institution rallies around the fellows. So the fellows and education of the fellows is really one of the primary goals of TSRH. And you really felt that while you were there. And obviously, there are a lot of people who had impact on both of us there. Anybody in particular who I think really sort of helped guide you towards the career that you've created, who you've modeled yourself as a surgeon, a researcher, but also as a parent and a wife and, you know, somebody in your society? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think both Steve Richards and Lori Carroll have been amazing mentors and both have shown how you need to give back to your society and be involved at a national level. Both are, you know, unflinchingly honest. And even though they have different styles or different perspectives, I mean, they aren't afraid to be their own personality. And I'd say for the listeners, that would be one thing I'd emphasize that whatever career you go into, whatever academic or non-academic private practice position you find, your, your specific person has talents and skills and ways of expressing yourself. And I think I would just not feel like you have to hide your personality. Instead, use it to your advantage to be successful. So Steve Richards was great. He came up here as a Minnesota pediatric orthopedics visiting professor when I was a fifth year resident. And he said, please apply for POSNA membership, which I did. And that allowed me as a fellow to present at POSNA. Lori Carroll as well just models what's it like to be a surgeon and a mother and an academician and a national leader. So yeah, lots of great mentors in fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a remarkable place. So for the listeners, they probably don't know that you actually didn't move straight from there to Mayo. And one of my favorite projects, because I got to work with you, that, that I was involved with early on was a early appraisal of the first year of pediatric orthopedics, which by the way, we need to now do 10 years, which is a little bit scary. But you started off not at Mayo, but in in Twin Cities. And I'm curious if you could talk about sort of that year, things that you learned during that year? I know that you made some great relationships that actually you still hold pretty dearly, but maybe just speak towards that year and things that you learned through that whole process. Absolutely. Well, leaving residency, I had our first child when I was a fifth-year resident, and my husband, Scott, really preferred to be in the Pacific Northwest or maybe Northern California or Minnesota, maybe Alaska. So so we had some fairly significant geographic constraints where we would work. So I started looking for a job as a resident, and I was offered a position at University of Minnesota, which is just up the road. And it's actually a very academic position. So it was 40% research, 60% clinical, which was appealing to me at the time. And so I signed at University of Minnesota before I even started fellowship. And the advantage of that is unlike Nick and and my other co-fellows, I was not flying around the country looking for a job. I could really focus on the fellowship. Um, I think the disadvantage of selecting a job early on is you maybe don't know enough about what you're looking for. And also the situation can change. So the many things about the University of Minnesota job, um, including the relationship with Twin City Shriners and the call schedule changed during that year and a half in ways that I had not anticipated. So I think 
anyone looking for a job, there, there really is no perfect job. It's just like a spouse. There's no perfect spouse. There are ways that the job is going to challenge you and that you may not be comfortable with. And there's things you're going to love about it and things that you're not going to love about it. So on the whole, my year at University of Minnesota was extremely valuable. And I developed new relationships. I developed new mentors. But it was a little bit awkward because I only spent one year there. And then I was recruited to go back to Mayo. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that there were a couple of things that I learned out of that year. One was that, you know, having a practice that doesn't necessarily work out exactly the way that you want it is not sort of a death sentence for your career. I think that we are all high achievers and we look at it as I I need to make this work. But it was I think it was actually really helpful for me, not that, that I was leaving the time or have left Atlanta, but to see somebody who I know and respect a lot have done that work through it and then moved on for that year. So I think that that was, uh, was actually, you know, a useful learning point for me as well. I'm curious, you know, how you are counseling residents who come to you or, or potentially fellows with regards to their job and the, are you saying hold off until fellowship for sure? It's obviously a little bit of a different job market than we were in. I'm curious what you're telling people nowadays. I think if you go into pediatric orthopedics, you need to be willing to move anywhere in the U.S. Because a pediatric orthopedist is kind of like a precious little orchid. And we need (laughs) just just the right amount of humidity, just the right amount of light, just the amount, you know, of sunlight, but, you know, indirect light, not direct light. So it's hard to find kind of, again, an ideal, true pediatric orthopedic job. And I think likely your first job may not be it. I think staying for only one year is kind of a bad thing. I I regret that. One year is not enough time to decide if the job is going to come into fruition. It's hard on the center that recruited you. Circumstances for me were such that the Mayo job opened up and, and if you waited longer, it may not be there further down the road. I think going in, you'd like to have a job that is relatively high volume so that you'll get early surgical experience. You'll be able to sit for the boards. You want to be taking call. Al Crawford once gave me advice saying don't subspecialize for your first five years of practice. And I think that is actually excellent advice. Nowadays, many people are doing two fellowships and are subspecializing right out of the gate. But nevertheless, I I think the principle is don't narrow your career focus prematurely until you have a chance to discover what you like, what you don't like, because functioning as attending is quite a bit different than functioning as a resident. And you might find that as it becomes your full-time career, there's different areas of interest that you wouldn't have anticipated. Yeah, I think that's really a, an insightful point because I mean, there's I still function very much as a general pediatric orthopedist, as do you, I know. And you know, obviously, I've sort of had a bent towards spine and towards hip. But if you don't give yourself the opportunity, you won't find that you also, for example, for me, love foot surgery. I do limb like things, and and those are all things that I really enjoy. And I think if I had pigeonholed myself a little bit, that might have been hard out of the gate. So I, I think that's really valuable. You know, you've had a tremendous run at Mayo for the past, I guess, nine years now. And with your group, which has expanded as Todd is there, you've had some really wonderful clinical and research opportunities present early on and now a little bit later. You know, what do you think were the key ones that you were able to take advantage of? And also conversely, what were some of the opportunities that in hindsight you sort of missed and wish that you jumped on? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, my year at University of Minnesota was also excellent as far as my research development. So again, among my mentors, I do count Dave Polly, who has been fabulous to me. Again, he, when I was in fellowship, he called me, I flew up a couple times to Minnesota, visited with him, designed some, you know, preliminary research studies. I also worked closely with an engineer at University of Minnesota, David Nuckley, and also got introduced to the Montreal group to Carl Eric Aubin and Stefan Perrant and Hubert Labelle. So again, I met all these people in my first year of practice, and, th- and that group has continued to be very close collaborators. I-, I think there's several levels of research you can do. You can do the basic science laboratory research. This cycle is kind of on the time frame of years. You can do retrospective chart reviews. This is more like a one-year study at max. I mean, with a resident or a fellow, you should be able to go from IRB chart review to publication, you know, in a year. There's prospective clinical studies, which are more intermediate term studies. And interestingly, if you think of kind of what are the papers that I'm really proud of and what have I really accomplished? I almost feel like some of the retrospective studies are as meaningful as the prospective ones. And prospective studies, which we'll maybe get into more in a minute, take a huge amount of work. And it's a little bit like going on a camping trip or doing a surgery or setting off into the wilderness. You pack your bags, you have what you have. And at the end of the trip, you either had what you needed or you didn't have what you needed. And you're committed to make it through that osteotomy or make it through the backpacking trip or make it through the research study with with whatever you set out with particularly for a prospective study because you really can't go back and redesign the study once you've once you've set your terms so I've been involved in research at all these levels and probably the additional level which I strongly encourage people to become involved in is that of study groups or registries where sites are in a very conscientious fashion you know pooling their data developing high-quality databases that you can use to answer multiple questions. So I would encourage young people to not delay in getting involved in research and try and pick three or four of those areas to be involved in. And as any project, there's ones that are going to yield fruit at different time periods. So it's good to have kind of multiple projects going at once because you don't ever really know which ones are going to be the real winners. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that you hit the nail on the head. You've really had the opportunity to involve yourself in such a broad swath of projects, not just at the participation level, but at the creation and design level. And I'm sure you've learned a tremendous amount through that. And I, I love the insight. We'll talk a little bit more about the MIMO study, which I think is is, is pretty remarkable. It's um, a saga. It's been a saga <laughs> the last 10 years. <laughs> But, you know, as you were going through the process of developing, you know, your research career and your clinical career, did you have goals early in practice that sort of helped define these? And how did you sort of monitor these and adjust them as you went? Was it a conscious thing or were you just sort of going with areas that you found interest with and diving into them and seeing what happened? Maybe five or six years ago, I decided to focus on spine topics, just taking an assessment of the projects I had done to date. Those were the ones that seemed to be most meaningful to me. Also, you know, four or five years into my practice, I was finding scoliosis and pediatric deformity, early onset scoliosis. I was finding treating these patients to be very rewarding. At some level, 
I found maybe three to four years in practice that the sheer diversity of pediatric orthopedics was a little bit overwhelming, where literally there's 200 different CPT codes that we can perform within a year. And my senior partners still 20, 30 years into their practice are doing surgeries they've never done before. And so I think part of me desired to develop a higher level of expertise and spine was an area to focus on and both from a clinical and a research standpoint. And if you focus, you move further. And I remember maybe it was more two, three years into practice where I found that different areas of my research, the MIMO study, my interest in navigation, some of the engineering projects that we were working on with Montreal, they all coalesced together and it all became a story. So I think my goal has been to develop new knowledge, write a story, have the different papers or projects all fit together, like building blocks in a castle, rather than just a smattering of random papers on random topics, which don't fit together into a cohesive unit. Well, as a, a bit of an outsider on that, I would say that I think it's worked because I've, I've always appreciated continuity, if you will, amongst your research ventures. I, I really do think that they, they fit well together. So thank you for that. Well, it makes it more fun, too, because you are developing the story. And I think I always knew I was, would like to be a scientist at some level. And so that is really part of the fun is, is seeing what the data shows you. So was there a way that you sort of defined this manner that you'd pursue an academic career? I mean, was that early on in your practice something that you thought about or did you, do you think you really needed a couple of years to sort of get into your career before you could find this? Oh, I always knew that I wanted to do academics and mm -hmm. I think medicine was kind of a surprise <laughs> that I would do academic medicine rather yeah. than just pure science. And now actually I'm very thankful for it because the whole process of writing grants and funding a lab and being a hundred percent research is very grueling. Looking at my other very talented colleagues who have become career scientists in physics or career scientists in molecular biology, it's a very challenging field and requires a lot of patience and fortitude and ability to, to deal with rejection because it's such a competitive marketplace right now as far as obtaining grant funding. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I think to the outsider and probably to the insider, your career right now involves participation in seemingly every aspect of pediatric orthopedic and spine care. I mean, you do a ton of high-level research. You are, you know, with me in a couple of study groups. You've got leadership positions, both in POS and in the SRS, and you've been a speaker at IPOS. One of the questions that I get a lot is, how do I, whether it be in Peds Ortho or elsewhere from our residents, is, you know, how do I get involved in a high volume of academic pursuits in my career? And I'm curious, as somebody who I think has reached as high a level as one could ask, what advice you're giving to people? Is there anything you do differently? Do you think that it's possible to take on too much? And how do you rein yourself in in those situations? I'm curious on that. For sure. Maybe, again, the last three, four years, every year I do try and write down a sentence about what I'm trying to accomplish or what I'm interested in or what's my primary goal. And I'd say my, my current meme is I'd like to develop new devices, technology, approaches, ways of treating pediatric orthopedic conditions that will help patients and families have an easier time and less burden of going through the treatment. 
So that's been kind of my overarching theme. And then you try and see, well, how does serving on the Posner Research Committee fit into that? Well, it does absolutely. We want our society to encourage new research that's going to improve the quality of care to make life better for children with elbow fractures or brachial plexus palsy or, or whatever it is. So I think any kind of responsibility that I take on, I'm trying to hold up to that mirror or that prism and say, hey, does this fit under my career values? Does this fit under my goal statement? And I have started to say no to a few things. My colleagues asked me to serve as head of the Bone Bank at Mayo, and I've had a couple other Mayo leadership positions I've said no to because it just didn't fit closely enough under my goals. So I think at some point you have to be selective. Starting out, however, your first three, four years, if someone asks you to write a paper or collaborate on a project or serve on this committee, I think at that point, that's the time to say yes. And, and if you get that opportunity, then you really want to shine. So if you have opportunity to serve on a national committee for your society, if you have opportunity to speak at a meeting, even if it's on, you know, flat foot and you'd rather be speaking on early onset scoliosis, go ahead and make the best possible talk that you can about Pez valgus and hit it out of the park and show people that you're willing to shine and willing to put forth your best effort, even if it's not exactly on your ultimate desired topic. So I'm curious on that a little bit. And, and when you talked about some of the opportunities you've had at the hospital, I tend to find both myself and some of my colleagues veer one way or the other. When I am given opportunities in the research realm, I have a tendency to say yes, whereas I'm more likely to say no to certain administrative roles. Whereas there are other friends of mine who are much more administratively interested in sort of growing their career and are more likely to say no to research. And I'm curious, do you tend to sway one way more than the other? Are you able to balance those two? Because I think as we get more well-known, if you will, within our field that begets more research projects, yes, but also more clinical duties as well at the hospital. Absolutely. And I think in residency or fellowship, you have this idealized concept of what it's like to be an attending. And you think, oh, oh wow, won't that be great? I don't need to write a daily progress note on every patient. But what you don't understand is that there's this huge backlog of leadership roles, administrative roles, decision-making roles that, that your attendings carry. And as Nick just said, it extremely important you don't overburden yourself. Some of these jobs can be a full-time job and you have no protected time to, to do it in. So I think you need, need to be selective, particularly on some of these administrative positions. You have to decide, what are you interested in? Are you interested in leadership? Do you want to be chair of your division someday? Do you want to be you know, a national leader at, you know, at POSNA or at SRS or whatever your society is? Or are you really interested in education? If so, you should probably go to the two-week AOS education class. You need to learn how to become an educator. You can be involved, again, both nationally, locally as an educator. But it's very hard, I think, to truly hit it out of the park and succeed at every single one. So, so yeah, Nick, I'm like you. I'm more interested in research. I have a lot of inquisitiveness and I really groove on questions and my curiosity, I think at some level is what keeps me going. So I tend to say yes to research positions and research opportunities and other things if it looks like it's going to be a lot of administrative responsibility. At this point in my career pathway, I, I've been saying no to some of those positions. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, seeing friends of ours like 
Mike Glatzbecker, who just, you know, moved to chair a department. And we know Mike well. He was on our original project and he's a, a great researcher. And now he's in a leadership role that I think is probably more daunting and involved than a lot of the stuff that he was doing before. It's curious to see how that's going to carry out for our friends as, as we get older and more senior in our positions. I wanted to talk a little bit more. We mentioned MIMO earlier and you sort of just alluded to it. And for those who don't know, may not be in the spine world. Noel has successfully, I'm going to say successfully, Thank you, created and, and carried out a prospective RCT in spine surgery that tackles a very controversial topic, which I think putting that whole sentence together speaks to the rarity of this. And, you know, this was on uh, sort of how screw density impacts curve correction and scoliosis. And it came about a long time ago. So I've got some questions. One, about sort of how this came about. Two, are you ever going to do this again? And I think three, and at least for me, the thing that I was most curious about, is it possible in the world of spine surgery that is so rapidly changing that a study that is born, you know, seven, eight years ago and takes so long to get the adequate follow-up on can stay relevant? Can the question stay relevant over time as we adapt in a, in a rapidly moving world? Excellent. Excellent questions, Nick. Basically, I showed up at University of Minnesota and David Polly assigned this topic to me and I started writing grants about screw density. And having trained in Dallas, where we used relatively few screws, and some of my mentors at Mayo had a variety in the number of screws they were using, and then Dave Polly was using more of a 2.0 density or two pedicle screws for every level fused, I realized this was an important clinical question. Now, it was an important question in 2010. Is it still an important question in 2020? I sure hope so. But we set out about trying to do a prospective randomized trial. And I heavily relied on David Polly's relationships with other colleagues around the country in order to assemble our study team. I think looking back on the study, our question was relevant, but our inclusion criteria were extremely narrow. We only were including lanky 1A curve patterns, which we thought represented 40 to 50 percent of all curves, but likely represents more like 5% of all curves that are being surgically managed in the U.S. So it took us quite a long time to enroll patients. We also had, I think, surgeons that were not 100% comfortable with randomization. And as the study moved forward and they talked about the study more and more to their patients, they had a higher level of acceptance and thus a higher level of enrollment. But unfortunately, it did take five, six years to enroll 200 patients in this study. I think another learning point was that funding for this study was just under $300,000, which initially sounds like a lot of money. But as you realize, we're paying each site $750 for a fully enrolled patient with two-year follow-up. That doesn't leave a lot of money for personnel. And most big studies, the main ticket item, the main budget item is salary for your study coordinators and salary for the personnel. Also, the $750 that we gave to each site for each patient probably in any way did not cover costs. In the whole, the whole effort was really far under budget. So I think those are the things that Nemo struggled with. On the upside, we do have a really interesting prospective data set of a single curve type from 14 different centers. And I'm hopeful that all our recruiting centers will be able to use this data set, not only to answer the screw density question, but any other questions that might arise regarding you know, modern treatment of AIS. So I guess to the other components of the question, you know, would you do this again? Do you think that there is a good role for prospective 
studies like this in the world of spine surgery, where, I mean, at the end of the day, we think of AIS as a common condition, but it's not that common. It does take time. You know, you look at the Perthi study group and things like that. It takes a long time to enroll the right type of patient that you want. You know, do you think that there's a big role for this? Do you think that we can get this kind of data in hindsight through well-done retrospective studies or, you know, for example, through the HARMS database? For sure, for sure. Well, I think if you truly start looking at some of these big retrospective data sets, are they truly powered to answer 400 different questions? Because we're taking the same data set and asking 400, 500 different questions of that same data set. And I think at some level, a prospective question with prospective randomization is a higher level of quality than these retrospective review of prospectively collected data. I think the problem is the cost, right? MIMO only enrolled 200 patients. We had, again, $300,000, and it still seems quite costly. Other studies like BRACE were upwards of six to eight million dollars to carry out the brace study, which again only enrolled, you know, less than 300 patients. So the cost of a prospective randomized trial done well is quite astronomical. And compared to, say, cardiology or oncology, we do not have drug companies that are funding this type of study. One option would be to ask our industry colleagues to begin to provide more of this prospective collection of data. And I would say with the two non-fusion technologies that were approved in August 2019, there is now some burden placed on industry to try and study spine devices. So it'll be interesting to see how our career moves forward. I'd say my biggest hurdle to doing another MIMO study is lack of funding because there's not really a clear targeting organization right now that would fund that type of study other than the NIH. So I think in my like five to 10 year goals, I mean, I would like to try and apply to some governmental agencies to see if we can fund this type of trial. Other people in orthopedics, uh, trauma has been successful in getting governmental funding. But I think within Peds Ortho, we have braced and, and that might be about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the unfortunate casualties of the current situation in our country and our world is going to be even harder to come by funding for these things. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be sort of a tough next couple of years, I think. And I think probably, Nick, the answer is the RCTs are too expensive. Probably these large registries also are extremely expensive. And what we need to do is find a way to harness the power of technology. I mean, all these EMRs, all these radiographs, all of this big data that's being collected. Is there a way that we can harness that information in a cost-effective manner to answer important peds ortho research questions? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that making sure that we maintain the sanctity and the quality of the data is going to be critical there. But you make a great point. And it, it is remarkable that, you know, if you and I are both on, say, Epic, that we can pretty easily merge and get similar data points in a reasonably expeditious fashion now, which is probably not something that was able to be done even 10 years ago. So uh, so I think that's all pretty pertinent. We've got uh, about 20 minutes left, and I want to focus a little bit differently and sort of head towards family life and work-life balance. As you are probably aware, you are the first female physician who I've had uh, the opportunity to spend some time with here, and that was a little bit on purpose. But I'm curious, you know, A, how have you sort of balanced the ability to participate in family activities? How do you achieve work-life balance? I'd love to know what, what your day looks like on a regular basis as a spouse myself. But then I think in, in addition to that, how have you sort of taken a lead as a mentor, as a female surgeon for so many other orthopedists, both in our field, but also just in, generally in orthopedics? Well, I'd say 
As in many endeavors, I think the team comes almost before the project. Looking back at MIMO, we assembled the team and then we decided what the question was. So I'd say in my personal life, I kind of assembled the team. I mean, I I started out with two great parents. I have an amazing spouse. Uh, Scott and I got married um, right before we moved out here for residency, but we had been, I guess, colleagues and friends since our undergraduate days. And at every step of the way, I spoke with him and I said, hey, I'm interested in orthopedics but I could also do family medicine in your hometown. He's from a town of 8,000 people, which was kind of the epicenter of the spotted owl crisis on the Olympic Peninsula. It's a town that's you know mostly supported to this day by, by logging and fishing and heavy industry. So that was a different career pathway. I mean, I, I could have ended up being a primary care doctor in Hoquiam, Washington, but I think our relationship was such that we both value our intellectual interests. And he could see that intellectually I was interested in orthopedics. And similarly, pediatric orthopedics became something that I was completely enamored with and highly enthusiastic. So I really do credit my husband as someone that's been willing to go on this journey with me and has really supported my career. And more than that, again, my I guess that's called my calling or my profession at a really high level. So I think in general, in my life, I feel like you know your spirituality or however you want to express it, that's probably the most important thing, your ethics, your values. And then the next thing in line, I'd say, is your family. And then the third thing on that ranking really always for me has been career. That's the third point on the on the totem pole after family. So I've just had really this unusual constellation in my life where I've been able to pursue my career at a very high level and have a family and have a sense of personal well-being. And all three really intermeshed together. I think if I'd been a corporate lawyer or a corporate business person, Scott would not have been as supportive of that career. I think when he sees me working long hours and I work, you know, usually 12-hour days during the week and I come home and I'm kind of tired and cranky sometimes. Uh, well, <laughs> the truth comes out at home, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I think he has been, you know, willing to accept that since he is supportive of what I do during the workday. So I think if you pursue your passions, if you pursue what you care about, if you find people in your life to be part of your team, it can all work out well. I'd say we've had some sacrifices. In my mind, living in the middle of a cornfield in Minnesota (laughs) is a little bit of a sacrifice because I love the outdoors. I fantasize about the outdoors. I love water. I love mountains. On the other hand, Scott likes a small town environment. He doesn't like traffic. He doesn't like big cities. And so for him, Rochester, Minnesota is actually a very good environment. So that's one area where I'd say we've we've compromised. And I certainly don't think I'd be able to do all these academic leadership positions if I was in a different city. It's possible, but there's more sacrifices. And my principle of putting family first and husband first is going to be harder to do if you're commuting between three hospitals in a city and having to park three times a day and working with three different EMRs. Absolutely. As somebody who unfortunately has to do some of that, you're absolutely right. So how do you, I mean, you've got three great kids who are all really energetic, at least my remembrance of, uh, of, of your oldest two. But, you know, how do you balance the ability to spend time with them with such a busy clinical life? There have been points where it's been very hard. I think particularly that kind of age one year to two and a half where the children are extremely clingy to one parent. Particularly with my first child, it was almost like a a personal insult when your toddler runs to daddy and doesn't run to mommy. It's a very hard moment. But I think having had three children now and understanding the long period of time that you get to know them, that different children will 
bond with you at different points in their growing up years, and that the child really does need both parents involved, but there's different ways to be involved. So, I mean, right now, Scott is the day-to-day caretaker, and I would say this current transition where our clinical practice has been put on pause is going to be very interesting. I'm trying to figure out how to work from home, which is actually extremely challenging. But I think I don't have the same caregiver role that my husband does, and I've learned to accept that. But I still know that I'm a very important person in each of their lives. And I try to spend time alone with them. So I guess one of my goals these next few years is to do solo trips with each of them. I have colleagues that have done this, either take them to a meeting or we go on a trip together and spend a few days together one-on-one. I think that's a great way to really get to know each of your children. We do you know, family vacations a few times a year. I spend time with them on the weekends. Usually it's a goal for for me to take the three children out for half day or whole day on one of the weekend days. And that gives Scott a bit of a break. Yeah, absolutely. I think that those are all great points. Uh, Ella and I just did a uh, father-daughter trip a couple months ago, and it was just, I mean, it's just the coolest thing, especially as they get into sort of the tween years and you can really hang out with them and they stay up later than you do. And it's just a lot of fun. What are you doing in general, you know, wh- whether it be with the kids or without for stability and the sort of, what are the daily routines that you have that help avoid burnout with so many irons in the fire? I like to run. So I will run two, three days a week. And in the last year, I've been going more like four or five days a week. Not long distances, like three to five miles. But I usually run on Fridays with our pediatric orthopedic group, which is me and Todd Milbrandt and whoever else on our resident team is willing to join us at 545 in the morning. Uh, We meet at the cafeteria. Yeah, in January. Then I have a ladies running group that I run with on Sunday morning. And we, you know, again, three to five miles and it's a good catch-up time. Even with COVID, we've been running. We just run eight feet apart. And uh, I like to ski. Our children have gotten into both cross-country and downhill skiing, which has been really fun. We have a lot behind our house. So we bought two acres behind our house. And my husband just purchased a subcompact tractor a couple of years ago. So we just bought a tiller, a rotary tiller for the tractor. So we're going to try and do some plowing in the next few weeks. So I, I think awesome. yeah, as long as children uh, keep their body parts yeah, inside the vehicle, exactly. it'll be fine. <laughs> So yeah, a lot of things. And I think you just grow where you're planted. So activities that I might want to do in Seattle are going to be different than what I've had opportunities to do in the Midwest. But find your hobbies and dedicate a few hours each week to doing them. And that'll keep you fresh and rested for the coming challenges. Absolutely. Well, I want to get back sort of to close up to your role. I mentioned it a second ago in the question as sort of a female leader within the field. And I'm curious, again, you've got a lot of leadership roles. Are there some that that you have in particular that help you tackle that role as a leader, as a female leader within orthopedics or certain ones that you're engaged with more because of what they represent in that eye? Yeah, I guess I have always just been taught that I can lead and excel and do what I would like to do at the highest level. That was how I was reared. And I think my greatest struggle has been to what extent do I need to conform to the people that are around me versus what point can I just be myself and say what I think and dress how I want to dress and do what I want to do and not be worried that I'm not you know, conforming to the Mayo standard. I think as a woman, sometimes it's a little harder to drive that. It's a little harder to figure out what your role is. But for the most part, I think within Peds Ortho, I feel like I've always been respected. There's probably a few situations where it's an area that I don't know as much about. For instance, I don't 
really know much about sports and the conversation drifts to sports. How do I bring that back around and still become part of the club? So much of leadership and responsibility is due to relationships. So how do you form relationships with the primarily male leadership of our society without making them feel like it's awkward or uncomfortable and still being able to relate in a very human way. I guess there probably are challenges there, but for the most part, I just kind of barrel ahead and be myself and assume that it's all going to work out in the end. I think a high level of comfort with yourself and comfort with your position in life is going to help work out all these potential awkwardnesses as far as differences between the sexes or concern about how you're going to be perceived. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things about pediatric orthopedics is that we've got such strong leaders from both genders. And I think that a lot of that gets, at least again, as a male, it gets hidden a little bit by the fact that we don't, I think, concern ourselves with that the way maybe other areas in orthopedics historically have. So what would you say? I'm sort of curious because I'm sure you get you have a lot of mentees who want to know what it's like to be a very successful pediatric orthopedist. What's the most common question with regards to that that you get on a regular basis? Yeah, I think people are often, you know, curious to know about child rearing and how you've managed to juggle the duties of being a mother and being a surgeon. People also ask about if there's biases in the field. I think there probably are biases out there, but I have not spent a lot of time reflecting on them, particularly through my training years or my fellowship years. And I think now 10 years into practice, I definitely see biases. I mean, how many female department chairs are there in orthopedic surgery in the whole U.S.? You know, not as many maybe as there should be. But is it very healthy to spend a lot of time thinking about it? I guess in general, I'm more about action than about reflecting. So I've been trying to get more involved with the Ruth Jackson Association. We've done, I think, three PERI initiatives here at Mayo where we bring in female medical students and female high school students and do a Sawbones workshop and a suturing workshop and kind of a, a pep talk about what is it like to be an engineering or what is it like to be a surgeon. So I think at some level, you have to just kind of keep building at these things from the bottom. It's a little bit like the basic science lab. You go over to the lab once a week. It's unclear if it's doing anything, Um, but you just keep shoveling effort in that direction. And you have to have this faith that eventually we're going to see more equality, I guess, at the top of the ladder. Gotcha. Well, I want to just finish up with, come back to something you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but that was sort of the future. And you said that you are at least from an academic research standpoint, you wanted to build things and build new technologies to help improve what we're doing and help improve care. What do you think are your biggest goals, you know, outside of that concept clinically from a family standpoint over the next, you know, five, 10 years? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think from an academic standpoint, what's really critical right now is that we have a successful launch of anterior spinal growth modulation or tethering or AVBT, whatever you'd like to call it. It was a big, big step with the FDA to approve it through a humanitarian device exemption last August. And now this device is becoming widely available to surgeons and we have to make sure that it's safe. So I think my big academic focus right now is to try and bring groups together, consolidate the data, move the study of tethering forward so that the same surgeons aren't repeating the same mistakes as they go through their learning curves. 
So that has ended up being fairly time-consuming. I'm also seeing at home that my children are rapidly growing up. I have an 11-year-old. You just alluded to the tween tween years. Yeah, now now Leaf wants to go and, you know, do more adult things on his own. And you can kind of see how he's going to start testing his boundaries a little bit, which is developmentally normal. But I think this really is a crucial time to be home and to be a presence at home. So I'm still kind of looking for the silver lining in the COVID epidemic. And right now, we're being asked to work from home. So my big focus right now is how do I be home? How do I be present? And how do I still invest academically in, in the projects that I care about in a meaningful way? And I'm hoping that this is just going to kind of be a reset for me, for all of us, really. I mean, whether you're on the front lines treating COVID patients or whether you're home holding Zoom conference after Zoom conference all day long, this is a time that your normally daily patterns have been interrupted. And I think that should give us all a a point for reflection and think about what changes are going to come about as a result of this pandemic and what changes in my personal life am I want to going to want to carry forward based on what I'm doing now. Yeah, I agree. It definitely allows for a lot of time for reflection, both you know, pers- individually and also with your spouse. My wife and I talk about things that we're thankful for on a regular basis. I'm thankful for Zoom, but I'm also realizing that I really like operating. I really like taking care of patients. And despite the fact that sometime, I think before COVID, I was you know coming home at times feeling exhausted and like you said, a little bit grumpy. You could go, man, I would love to have that 12-hour day back where I had a really hard couple of cases as opposed to you know seven Zoom conferences during the course of the day. So definitely a lot of time for reflection for all of us. And I'm suffering from the lack of routine. Um, just getting up and having the day highlighted by conference calls, again, as opposed to in-person conferences, teaching the residents, face-to-face interactions. I think as a result of this, a lot more people in the U.S. are going to end up working from home a year from now. But what are we going to see as a society now that even more of our relationships are becoming virtual as opposed to face-to-face? It's a very interesting time, and I really hope that this pandemic is going to bring the U.S. together rather than split it further apart. I agree. And I think that one of the beauties of our profession is that at the end of the day, it's always, you know, a face-to-face contact with the patient and with the family that, that really drives it. And I think we're more and more appreciative of that now. Well, Narelle, uh, this has been awesome, as has been the case with all of these. I feel like I could have another hour-long conversation, no problem. But this has been great. I always enjoy talking to you. I always enjoy your insight and value our friendship. I would say that I'd love to see hit positive, but obviously that's not going to happen this year, but we will see Too each sad. other soon. And, you know, again, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Well, Nick, I've always admired you as like one of the most uniformly positive people I've ever met. And I don't know that whether you're truly that positive on the inside or whether you're able to just project this positivity, but you certainly are among my role models as far as the kindness and the warmth that you show to everybody you interact with. So so this has been a real pleasure and just best of luck to everyone out there, particularly those on the front lines. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Noelle. 